Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. From John, chapter 7, verse 37 to 52. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, This is really the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some asked, Surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. When the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? The police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are cursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search, and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this moment now, moment of silent reflection, perhaps the most silent and reflective we've been all week, because the fact of the matter is, we move so quickly. This world comes rushing at us faster than we can respond. And so we become frantic, anxious, exhausted, distracted, fearful, over-entertained, overconfident in a world with a million connections being made every moment we become lonely and isolated in a city full of people we feel like no one knows us help us to see that however we find ourselves right now believing or unbelieving or somewhere in between whether you seem so close to us or you feel a million miles away and we wonder what happened to you or maybe what happened to us you see us You know us in all our complexities and contradictions, in all the ways we get it, in all the ways we don't get it. And you love us. And that love is demonstrated most powerfully 
most poignantly, most beautifully in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who gives his life on our behalf. And so now we pray that you would break through all the static and confusion with your truth, that you would break through the hardness of our hearts with your love, that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, it's always funny to watch how different personalities and temperaments deal with the world. As a pastor, part of my job is to study myself and to study you and to study humanity at large and figure out kind of what makes us tick. And one of the ways to look at that is this ancient archetypal paradigm called the Enneagram that talks about these nine different aspects of kind of the way that your soul is grooved. And one of the ways that that plays out is when I go on long-distance hikes with Florence's dad, Richard, and her brother, Richie. And... So we go on these hikes on the Pacific Crest Trail. Pacific Crest Trail is that iconic trail, 2,600 miles, begins at the Mexican border, goes all the way through California, through Oregon, through Washington, to the Canadian border. And we just kind of hike through 7 miles, 17 miles at a time, just taking the next step. Now, as an Enneagram 7, where I'm the Epicurean, the glutton, I always need more, you look at my supply bag for a 17-mile hike, and it is snacks and a Frisbee. At some point, everyone laughs because we'll take a break, and everyone else has all this intricate stuff, and I take out a a competition Frisbee and ask who wants to play. Whereas you look at Florence's brother, Richie, this Enneagram 5, Enneagram 6, always prepared for the worst, overstudying everything, researching everything, and he has a full pack for a day trip, mind you. Not only of all the medical supplies and equipment and signaling beacons and a tent and a sleeping bag in case something happens and you need to get comfortable for a day hike, by the way. He's ready for everything. But the one thing we all agree on is that you have to bring enough water, no matter what. Because water in the wilderness is critical. There's a place in Joshua Tree on one of the most beautiful, pristine hikes that has this sobering sign that says, bring plenty of water. People have died of thirst on this trail. People just like you. And Jesus comes today in our scripture and says, what are you thirsty for? Because thirst is a universal part of being a human being. The question is not, do you thirst? It's, what do you thirst for? What do you need so badly that it feels like you're going to die without it? And how are you quenching that thirst? Let's unpack this today in the scripture we have as we see that Jesus reveals your thirst, he relieves your thirst, and then he releases you for ministry. First, he reveals your thirst. He stands up on the last day of the great festival, the great day, and he cries out, let anyone who is thirsty Come to me. So the implication is, you are all thirsty. The context is, they're on this festival of booths or tabernacles where they would remember the people of Israel, generations ago, had been set free from slavery in Egypt. And they were wandering through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. A journey that, if you do Google Maps and you put in walking, should take 13 or 14 days. It took them 40 years. Some theologians say it only took them one day to get out of slavery in Egypt, but it took 40 years to get the slavery mentality out of their minds and hearts. 
And as they're wandering, they get thirsty and they start grumbling. And Moses and God have this amazing conversation and God says, strike this rock and I will pour out plenty of water for all the people. And he does. So this becomes one of the great Israelite celebrations of the year where they remember that God provided plenty of water for a thirsty people in the wilderness. And so each day of the festival, they would go to one of the particular pools in Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam, and they would take vessels of water and pour it out at the altar as a reminder that God refreshes and cleanses and purifies and sustains. Imagine Jesus watching them. This hungry, thirsty people. Imagine him watching them fill up these water jugs day after day and pour them out. And imagine him feeling sorry for them. As they go about this beautiful ritual designed to put them in touch with the God who created them and cares for them. And for some of them, it had become this cold, dull ritual that lost its meaning. Now, some of you I know say that's actually one of the biggest problems with organized religion is that it develops these cold, dry rituals and it loses its real meaning. And I say, I hear you, I've seen it, I've experienced it, I get it. But I would also say, you know, I say the words I love you to my wife no fewer than half a dozen, a dozen, a hundred times a day. I say it a lot. Just because I say those words often does not mean I mean them any less. Now, there is a way to say I love you to someone in a way that is cold or dry or ritualistic or repeated. There's a way to text I love you to someone that's actually a test where you didn't say I love you back fast enough, right? We can use words and actions in all sorts of ways. But just because something is done poorly doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It means it should be done well. The word religion at its core comes from the root of two Latin words, re, to do again, re, ligio, Ligament, something that connects bone to bone. So if you look at religion, it's designed at its core to reconnect us with God, with each other, and with our truest self. That's why we do the things we do on Sunday. That's why we only come together one or two times a week so that you can be reconnecting with other people the other 165 hours of the week, plus sleeping, of course. So on one hand, I think Jesus is looking at this hungry, thirsty people and feeling sorry for them because they're thirsty for connection. They're thirsty for redemption. They're thirsty for liberation as these Israelite people at the time of this text were under occupation from Rome. The Pax Romana that says, yes, we will have peace in this world at the tip of a spear, and if you don't like it, we will dominate and kill you and your people. They longed, they thirsted for so many things. And he's standing right there in front of them. See, Jesus knows all of our ways of seeking water, quenching our thirst. Our ways may not be the same as they were 2,000 years ago. Some of them may be more similar than you think. But we all go about our own patterns of filling up that thirst. Bono once wrote, Bono from U2, the one who also said to the United Nations when he appeared before them, he said, pardon me if I appear nervous. I rarely speak before crowds of fewer than 50,000. <laughs> Bono also went on to say, what kind of hole exists in the heart of a person 
when they need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to feel fulfilled. This thirst, please tell me that I matter. Now, maybe you don't have the opportunity to stand in front of 70,000 people and hear them scream, I love you. I know one or two people who join in this church online who you actually do have that opportunity. That's awesome. I'd like to hear what that's like. But for most of us, it's going to the person next to us and saying, please tell me I matter. It's going to your Instagram account or Facebook account or whatever you do and saying, do I have any new followers? This desire to have fame or some sort of expanded connection. LeBron James, who unfortunately now is out of the playoffs, so sorry, Hearst family, as you're watching. I know that that's not uh, a major, um, uh, that is not a major pr- benefit for any of us. But LeBron James, who is no stranger to success, to victory, to championships, after winning one of his championships, said, What really got to me when we won the championship was how short of a time it lasted. The championship lasts just like that. The confetti rains, you go in the locker room, you pop the champagne, you do the media, you have the parade, and then it's over. It's over. You're looking around, and everybody's back to normal. I was like, wow, that was an unbelievable 48 hours. I want it again. This thirst for success, this thirst for achievement. Louis C.K., the comedian, who oftentimes comedians are the poets and prophets of our society, able to see into the human heart in ways and then express it in comedic ways. And he talks about the thirst, the need to be distracted all the time, specifically by our smartphones. And Louis C.K. says, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. It's the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. That knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything. You're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit on you. Just the sadness. Life is tremendously sad just being in it. Louis C.K. then shares a story about a time he was in his car listening to a Bruce Springsteen song, Jungle Land, that made him really sad. And he says, I go, oh, I'm getting sad. Got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. Then I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. The thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, we push it away with a little phone or sex or food, You never feel completely sad or completely happy. You just feel kind of satisfied with your product, and then you die. The thirst for distraction, to not fully feel anything. Diogenes Allen, who was a philosopher, theologian, passed away in 2013, professor at Princeton, writes about this. He says, we never seem to be satisfied with what we possess or achieve. We are restless, and we crave what is novel. As Plato puts it, we are like leaky vessels. It's as though we were containers into which we keep pouring things, but we never get filled up because there's a hole in each container and something is always leaking out. So we spend our lives trying to attain fullness, satisfaction, and completeness, and yet we never do. We go on thinking that if we just had a bit more, then we would be satisfied. If we had something else, then our potential would be realized, our happiness assured, and our fulfillment achieved. 
So this passage today, Jesus comes to you and says, let all who are thirsty come to me. The question is, are you aware of what you're thirsting for? And are you aware of how that drives all sorts of patterns and behaviors and trajectories in your life? As you addict yourself to pornography or alcohol or anger or work or status or success, just trying to gather more. As you demand living water out of all sorts of things, like this symbolic ritual, laboriously pouring more water, and yet it's not filling. Now imagine Jesus watching over you as you worry yourself to death over these things, as you push yourself to the point of exhaustion to be a part of the A-team, as you subject yourself to the opinion of the world, and imagine, instead of hiding your thirst, instead of covering over it, or filling it with substitutes, Jesus says, just admit it. It's okay. You're thirsty. And as soon as you see that, you're not disqualified from my presence, he says. You're actually ready for it. He says, if anyone is thirsty. He does not say, notice, if anyone is qualified or surrendered enough, all one needs is to be thirsty and to recognize it. All one needs for this deep, robust, profound, beautiful, brilliant, resilient life with the living God, all you need is to be needy and to admit it. Thirst is as simple of a condition as Jesus can make. He says, thirsty? Yes? Please come and drink away. This is the simplicity of the gospel in this invitation. He reveals your thirst and... He relieves your thirst. Come to me, he says. Now, the backstory of this ritual goes back to Exodus chapter 17. A couple more details. As the people in Israel were wandering in the wilderness, there was no water. And what happened was the people thirsted and complained. Okay? Thirsted and complained. And God's response to their complaint against God who has rescued them, was not, how dare you? It was, I will provide for you. I will be patient with you. I will care for you. And so he says to Moses, go ahead of the people, take the elders and the staff. I will be standing in front of you on the rock. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And now Jesus is standing on the great day of the festival, remembering that very moment, and he's saying, I am everything that that rock pointed to. I am the one who will be struck so that you might live. I am the one who will be poured out so that your deepest thirst might actually be met and quenched. To bring the very presence of God into your life in a radical, tangible, supernatural way. Now, how does he say he will do that? Verse 39, he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit. I want to point out to you 
especially in the season of Pentecost when we celebrate and remember God's giving of God's spirit, that God not only dwells around us but within us. In verse 39 he says, I will give you my spirit. And then it makes the comment, John the gospel writer makes the comment, the spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So as you're paying attention, you're saying, so which one is it? Is the spirit present or was there a time that the spirit was not present because last week was Trinity Sunday and we said that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had been existing in a divine dance of eternal love throughout all eternity. So what gives? Was the Holy Spirit present before Jesus' glorification on the cross? And the answer is yes. But episodically, occasionally, and periodically. You see these moments in the Old Testament where the Spirit would enliven the artists of the community to create beautiful art. You would see this moment earlier in Jesus' baptism when the voice of the Father says, you are my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit will descend like a dove. The Spirit did show up before Jesus was glorified on the cross, but in ways that were a particular person and a particular place. But after Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, when he breathes on his disciples, after his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is present permanently, regularly, and fully, everywhere. It signifies a new age to come, in which the symbolism of this Feast of Tabernacles, this provision in the wilderness, this flowing water that gives life, all of that points to the life with God with the Spirit flowing to you and through you. We see this at church in our baptismal liturgy. Whenever someone's baptized, we remind each other, water cleanses, refreshes, purifies, and sustains. Jesus Christ is living water. Think about that for a moment. Water cleanses. How does the Holy Spirit cleanse? My son Joshua yesterday at his baseball game hurt his finger. And, you know, he, want, he wanted to show off the wound on the finger, but he also wanted it to stop hurting. And I said, son, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is it's not going to hurt forever. The bad news is we have to clean it first. The thing that struck me was he trusted me enough because he knows that I love him. That though the cleansing was uncomfortable, he knew that it was for his own good. A Christian is someone who can say, I trust God, I trust Jesus enough to allow him into every aspect of my life. Our friends in the 12-step recovery programs teach us this as they talk about admitting to God, to ourselves, and one other human being the exact nature of our wrongs. See, we believe deep down in our core that if I admit the exact nature of my wrongs and my brokenness, you will run at worst or say yuck at best. And so would God. But once you see that you can trust God with the parts of your life that need to be cleansed, you're in the safest relationship ever. You're in the most secure position ever. Whereas the Apostle Paul said, you can't accuse me anymore. I don't even accuse myself because I answer to God who knows me and sees me. That does not minimize our brokenness. That does not excuse poor behavior or damaging violence. Not at all. It actually takes it more seriously. As we say, all of our lives are subjected to the cleansing presence of God's Holy Spirit. And we take that seriously together. 
That's why at Renew Church, we're a church where we say this often, but it's important to repeat. When we say, how are you doing? The only right answer is not, I'm fine. Because sometimes you're not fine. Sometimes I'm not fine. And that's okay. And when we share what's going on in our lives at the deepest level, it's not our job to fix one another, to judge one another. It's our job to walk with one another as the Spirit cleanses in the midst of our congregation and community. When's the last time that you felt known and loved and, as the scriptures would say, fully cleansed? Hear Jesus say to you right now, if you're thirsting for that, come to me. Water purifies. Now, in church, that word purity has been taken, bent, twisted, expanded, amplified, transformed, and been kind of bent into all sorts of different meanings. And purity becomes this measure of if you're a good person or not. But think of purity at the core of what it means. Purity is 100% the thing it's supposed to be. If you have a smoothie that is 100% juice, it's all juice with no filler. If you have a bar that is 100% gold, it is all gold with nothing else. And when God comes to you and says, I cleanse with my spirit so that you could become purely what it looks like to be a human being fully alive, that's the invitation. Yes, that will have ramifications of ways that we use our bodies, of ways that we treat one another, of ways that we pour ourselves out on behalf of others. Of course, it will take place in real time. But at the core, it's an invitation to become your truest self. Maybe this would be an exercise this week. Ask a close friend or family member, who would you say I'm becoming? Water refreshes. Where do you go when you're thirsty? Jesus' vision for you and me is to have a never-ending supply of himself, to make him your water. The interesting thing is, Jesus comes to you and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. But he doesn't say, master the doctrine or memorize the Bible facts. Of course we want to have good doctrine and understand scripture. But he says the pathway to true deep life is not a product, is not a strategy. It's not ten steps. The pathway is me. Get as close to me as you can. I desire that you go deeper than the ritual, beyond the religion, to an actual relationship with a God that knows you and loves you and calls you his own. Now think about that for a second. He's inviting you to a relationship with himself, a relationship with a person. How do you develop a relationship with a person? You say, you see somebody there, you say, I want to know that person better. You spend time with them. You study them. You find out what makes them tick, what motivates them. You find ways to please them. You open your heart to them. You make commitments to them. I will show up for you. I will be there for you. That's how you get close to somebody. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with a person. It takes time and effort. Some of us are standing right in front of this stream of living water and we're dying of thirst because you're too busy. It takes effort 
takes time, takes intentionality. Water sustains the daily ongoing practice of taking him in. What sustains you? Throughout thousands of years, men, women, and children of every language and culture and time zone have said prayer with God every day is a way to sustain you in the wilderness. Which makes sense, because if you're cultivating a relationship with someone, you need to talk to them regularly. What does your prayer life look like? This is why we have a prayer gathering at noon every Wednesday. Not because we expect you to only pray half an hour every week. You can do whatever you want. But if you want to grow more deeply in connection with God, you need to communicate. Sometimes people say, I want to join the prayer gathering, but I don't know how to pray. I say, this is perfect. Join in. Just listen in on what Christians talk about when they pray. It's a laboratory. It's a classroom. It's a practicum. Maybe just put on your iPhone every morning or whatever phone you have, a timer, three, three minutes in the morning. Say, God, here's what I hope for today. What would you have me do? And just be still. Cultivating a life of prayer. Cultivating a life of scripture, this intake, this input. We have a book at this church that I give everyone that would like it called Mark for Everyone by N.T. Wright, a friend, a scholar. I guess I can't call him a friend. I'll say acquaintance. But I have had a mimosa with him. Um, but this is the book that I read when I'm studying scripture to prepare for a sermon. This is the book that I give people when they're getting into scripture for the first time. But the important thing is that you have a diet of scripture, prayer, scripture, trusted community and friends to see your blind spots and to lovingly call them out, to encourage you and challenge you to become the true person who you're called to become. This is why Renew Church has the shape that it has. This is why we do the things we do. As he reveals your thirst and he relieves your thirst. But finally, he releases you from ministry. He redirects you outward to quench the thirst of others. See, it's intriguing. In this short passage, there are four different opinions of who Jesus is. Verse 40, he's the prophet. Verse 41, he's the Messiah. Verse 41, he's a Galilean, so he can't be the Messiah. Verse 44, he should be arrested. All these opinions... And today, the opinions of who Jesus is, they come to us from just as many different places. But I want you to note that the Pharisees, some of the temple officials, the people whose job it was to study the scriptures, to master them, to understand what it would be like if God broke through for us, are standing in front of the person who is the living water, and they're missing him entirely. They totally missed him because he was not expect he was not who they expected him to be didn't say the things they expected him to say he's from galilee that is outside of our boundaries or our expectations they were waiting for the messiah but missed jesus because he was outside their expectations and so having convinced themselves that jesus is their opponent they curse the crowds who believe in him Verse 49, they ridicule the police who are impressed by him. Verse 47, and they intimidate Nicodemus, who speaks up for him. 52. By the way, did you notice this is another place in Scripture where we see Nicodemus? This is the third time this month where we saw Nicodemus coming at night. We see him burying Jesus in the day. And now we see this kind of middle transforming part where Nicodemus is starting to get a little bit of courage, a little bit of bravery. He's sitting on the council. He's got power. Obviously, the council is all about to give a no vote. And Nicodemus gives 
some of the best elementary lesson in truth-seeking. Shouldn't we hear Jesus out? Shouldn't we hear his claims? Maybe that's what he would say to you and me as well, because we do the same thing. We say, I'm not sure if I want to become a Christian. I'm not sure if I want to follow Jesus. If I do, what is it going to do with the way that I use my body? If I become a Christian, what is it going to do with the way that I use my money? If I become a Christian, what's it going to do with the way that I interact with society politically? And I need it to check all of these boxes of my demands. And if it does, then I'll become a Christian. But Nicodemus would say, you're looking through the telescope from the wrong end, my friend. You don't start with your demands and ask if he meets them. That's not the way you meet the cosmic ruler of the universe. You start with, did he really rise from the dead? Is he really the unique son of God? Does he really empower you with the Holy Spirit that is living water in this world? If those things are true, then you can trust him with the rest of your life. Then he says, but to those who come and drink, and when we drink, living water will flow to you. Living water will flow to you and through you to others. Verse 48, he says, out of the believer's hearts shall flow rivers of living water. Note that. Christianity is not just an invitation for you to have living water in your life. It is nothing less than that, but it's a whole lot more. Streams of water will flow out of your heart, out of your life, into this world. It harkens back to this beautiful prophetic image in Ezekiel chapter 47, where the temple the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock, where God and the people shall meet together, that from that temple shall flow all these streams of living water. And now Jesus says, and later Paul the apostle will say, you now are the temple. You now are the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock. You now are the connection point where God's presence of renewal flows out into this world. Jesus invites you to himself and says, come and drink. And then he sends you and me out as living water to a thirsty world. And as we respond, you are transformed and renewed. Bit by bit, sometimes one step forward, two steps back, but you are on a journey. You are drinking from true living water. And as we do, this world is transformed. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray now, as hungry and thirsty people, that you'd meet us. Give us the courage to hear what you're saying to us now and respond, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Help us to turn to you as the one who actually quenches our thirst. And empower us to go out and be your hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, we continue with our time of offering, which on one hand is an act of worship as we say, all that I have is a gift from God. So I give back to God freely from what God has already given me. It's also an act of mission because everything we give on Sunday and online throughout the week goes to fund this church's mission to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. So if you'd like to join in the offering, you can do so online. It's all encrypted and secure and tax deductible. RenewSanDiego.org. Just click on the Give button. 
But offering also goes beyond our finances. It's about our entire lives. And so as the band plays this offertory song, we have a time to reflect on what does it look like to respond and to pour ourselves out as living water in this world. Let's commit our offering using the prayer. If you're following along and scrolling down, we're on page six as we pray. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, maker of all things. Through your goodness, you have blessed us with these gifts. With them, we offer ourselves to your service and dedicate our lives to the care and redemption of all that you have made for the sake of him who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.